This episode contains descriptions of real crimes, including family violence. Punishment's a, a tricky concept because we don't live in a lawless society in which vengeance or lynch mobs rule. Sentencing is very complex and it's very hard to communicate the complexity of it to people who aren't intimately involved in the particular sentencing. Therefore, as I've indicated, the sentence of the court is that on charge one, you are sentenced to be uh, in prison for life. On charge two, the charge of incitement to murder, you are sentenced to be in prison for eight years. I think we have a great expectation that sentences will deliver a lot more than what they're capable of delivering. Obviously no utility in making orders for accumulation because the total effective sentence is life in prison. I decline to set a minimum period. One of the basic misunderstandings of sentencing is that the focus is on judges as being the central player in sentence. And indeed they are in the sense that they're the ones who impose the sentence in an individual case. However, sentencing is far more complex. What punishment for taking a human life? How many years, months, days? It's a tough question, but one Supreme Court judges carry out on our behalf. What if the death was accidental, but still violent? What if the victim was a child or a spouse? Was the offender a teenager or elderly? Was it a hate crime or a random, unexplainable act of drug-fuelled violence? Was a weapon used? The result may be the same. Someone is dead. But the range of culpability is enormous. It doesn't take too long watching trials at the Supreme Court to realise no two crimes are ever the same. And as each crime is individual, so too is each sentence. I'm Greg Muller. This is Gertie's Law. This episode is about sentencing. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. I have determined that it's appropriate to set a non-parole period for the public policy reasons articulated by Justice King. I fix a period of 30 years before you become eligible for parole, but for your age I would have fixed a longer non-parole period. I declare pursuant to section 6 AAA of the Sentencing Act that but for your pleas of guilty, I would have sentenced you to life imprisonment without parole. That's Justice Hollingworth, principal judge in the criminal division, handing down a particularly long sentence a few years back. One of the most difficult times in the criminal trial process is sentencing. And it's difficult for a number of reasons. In most of the cases we have in this court, somebody has died often in very violent circumstances. And what makes our task particularly difficult is that there's never a sentence that we could deliver, a sentence that we could impose that would bring back the deceased person, that's going to make the lives of their loved ones healed or whole again. The one thing we can't do is undo what's actually happened. And of course, if you're the victim or the loved one of a victim of a violent offence, the thing you most wish for is that it hadn't happened. I'm Leslie Taylor. I'm a judge of the Supreme Court of Victoria. Justice Taylor was appointed a Supreme Court judge in the criminal division in 2018. The pressure to 
get things right is enormous and so it should be. Um, This court deals with, in my particular jurisdiction, crimes that are the most serious that are committed in this state. Um, Inevitably, you are making judgments about what is going to happen to someone's life for the next up to life, um, decades. Often someone has died, so there are at least two families who are devastated by that. Those are very weighty and difficult things to judge. Formerly the Director of Public Prosecutions, Justice Champion has been a criminal judge here at the Supreme Court since 2017. The decision to send someone to jail is a huge decision. I've been into jail, so see what they're like. They're not hotels, they're awful places. And people who are in jail are at risk, remain at risk until their sentences are over. The bottom line of it is they can't walk out the front door, get in their car and go and buy pizza. You know, their liberty is deprived every day of their life and they live sometimes 23 hours a day in a, in a room that's, well, six by four. Imagine that. I mean, just, it's un- unimaginable to think of those circumstances. That you've done more time and the two of you exchanged further insults and threats. At the end of the trial, and if the accused has been found guilty, comes the sentence. The jury's role is finished and they've gone home. The defence and prosecution have done their job. The arguments are all over. It's now between the judge up on the bench and the offender down in the dock facing each other. Sentencing is where the rubber hits the road in the justice system and they're by far the most misunderstood aspect of the court's work. He put his hands up, outstretched at shoulder height and said words to the effect of one-on-one, come out on the road. He was alone and unarmed at the time. They include extensive background of the offender and the victim. The two of you began a relationship in late 2013. The relationship was a turbulent one, with times of happiness interspersed by frequent arguments, occasional physical violence and the regular use of cannabis and ice. And give a blow-by-blow description of the crime and what led to the offending. A number of neighbours heard the sounds of a man and woman yelling, screaming and swearing at each other coming from your house. They also heard numerous doors being slammed. It was difficult to hear exactly what was being said, although several people heard a woman yelling words to the effect of, give me my phone back. Someone heard a man calling someone a stupid bitch. Some of the neighbours also... A short time later, you left the house with blood on your arms, legs and clothes. You appeared hysterical and were asking for someone to call an ambulance. They're comprehensive, often gruesome and excruciating in detail. Or whether the knife was being held horizontally or vertically when you stabbed him. The pathologist described it as a somewhat obliquely oriented single stab wound to the upper left chest, immediately behind the middle of the left collarbone. The blade entered the left chest cavity to a depth of about 40 to 50 millimetres and cut part of the left upper lobe of the lung and the subclavian vein, leading to external blood loss and a large collection of blood within the left chest cavity. A reading of a sentence in court will regularly run for up to 45 minutes, but the subsequent news item will likely run for no more than two minutes or a couple of hundred words. Please stand, Miss Walker. Balancing as best I'm able the competing considerations laid down in the Sentencing Act 
and having regard to the matters I've just discussed. For the offence of manslaughter, I sentence you to imprisonment of seven years. I fix a period of four years as the period you must serve before becoming eligible for parole. How do you explain that the judge has taken 30 minutes to describe what the crime was and to tell the criminal what they've taken into account and why they're getting the sentence that they're getting? Because that's what the criminal judges do. They really speak to the person who's committed the crime. And you can't do that in two minutes if you're going to do it properly. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Anne Ferguson. Sentencing requires the judge to take into account so many things and it's hard to explain all of the things that you have to take into account to get to what's the just and appropriate sentence. It's a bit like a melting pot. There's a lot of things that go in to make up a sentence. The maximum penalty for the crime of manslaughter is imprisonment for 20 years. This is Justice Bell, delivering a sentence in 2018. Under the Sentencing Act, the only purposes for which sentences may be imposed are to impose a just punishment, to to deter the offender specifically and other people generally from committing the same or similar offences, to rehabilitate the offender, to denounce the offender's criminal conduct and to protect the community. Determining a sentence begins with these five purposes. Sure. Ari Freiberg, Chair of the Sentencing Advisory Council of Victoria. Ari's been a law academic for more than four decades, published books and articles about sentencing, and in 2009, he was made a member of the Order of Australia for his contributions to criminology and sentencing Um, law. I can go on for days and days and days, but... um, There's not much Ari doesn't know about sentencing. Well, there are a number of purposes, and they're all set out in the Sentencing Act. And this is the challenge for judges. They've got to balance about five purposes. Um, retribution or the imposition of just punishment for the crime. Justice Hollingworth again. We're meant to look at punishment. Now, punishment's a, a tricky concept because we don't live in a lawless society in which vengeance or lynch mobs rule. We have an idea of just punishment. And of course, that's the concept of what is a just punishment is going to vary enormously from person to person. Uh, it's about specific and general deterrence, that is, deterrence of the individual and deterrence of others. Specific deterrence, which is meant to look at deterring this particular offender from committing another act like this. General deterrence, that is the idea of imposing a sentence that will stop other people who might be thinking of performing a similar act. There remains a clear need for specific deterrence in this case, as well as general deterrence and just punishment. It's about rehabilitation. Rehabilitation, the extent to which this offender um, is capable of still being a a worthwhile and contributing member of the community. It's about denunciation, that is the court saying that what you have done is wrong uh, and, and making that statement both to the offender and the community and ultimately for the protection of the community. This is where the motivations of the judge can differ from the desires of the public. The problem is that from the different perspectives of different people, those assume greater or lesser weight. So if, for instance, you are one of the victims or members of a victim's family, obviously the things you're most interested in are punishment and the idea of general deterrence. Probably the most important factor has been just punishment. That is, the idea that the punishment should fit the crime that there should be some 
degree of proportionality between the harm caused and the sentence imposed on the offender. One of the basic misunderstandings of sentencing is that the focus is on judges as being the central player in sentence. And indeed they are in the sense that they're the ones who impose the sentence in an individual case. However, sentencing is far more complex. It's made up of the legislature who writes the statutes, who sets maximum penalties or mandatory penalties, who creates the sanctions, whether it be probation or community correction orders or intensive correction orders or drug treatment orders, and provides the money for all of these sanctions. And the third arm is the executive, that is the corrections departments and the parole boards or the post-sentencing authorities. And the relationship between those in terms of who has the dominant power changes over the centuries and changes over the decades. Also, our values, society's values, are constantly changing. And in turn, the laws and then the courts reflect that. We have a changing society. We also have views about new technologies. There was nothing in the Bible about internet porn. There was nothing in the Bible about insider trading. So for many new offences, we have to uh, decide how serious they are because there were no precedents. So some examples of that... um, a study done by the Sentencing Advisory Council of Sentencing Practices of Sex Offences Against Children found that the the average or the most common sentence was about four years. And uh, people considered the public, um, the Royal Commission, various other considered that to be an inadequate response, simply because it didn't reflect the gravity of the offence, the violence inherent in a crime against a child. So the response was the standard sentence, which is now much higher, eight to 10 years. And the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal, has now said on a number of occasions that sentencing standards have to change. And in a number of very recent cases, they've upheld sentences well above 10 years for these offences, saying they are appropriate, that current sentencing practices previously were not appropriate. So yes, We do change our views. Uh, Sometimes we change them the other way. Um, In Queensland, abortion has been decriminalised. It was effectively done in Victoria. So they're not bound by what judges have done in the past. Judges should do what's appropriate in each case. So once again, you have a tension between justice as consistency with other like cases and justice as doing the right thing in in, in this case. And this is another one of those really difficult sentencing conundrums that the courts face. Justice Bell has been a trial division judge at the Supreme Court since 2005. Uh, And I think we can observe over time uh, that the courts attach different weight uh, to those principles. And I I can give you a very good example of that. Sentencing for crimes uh, of violence by men against women, sentences of in, in relation to crimes that have a, uh, a gender-based quality, I think have increased and rightly increased over time because crimes uh, of violence against women I- invoke a, a sense of, of horror. You as an individual and others who would, uh, who would likewise offend must be deterred from acting on disrespectful, contemptuous and misogynistic views an opinion about women in that or any other like manner. 
The crime That's Justice Bell, delivering a sentence on a case where a woman was killed by her ex-boyfriend. Operative, you described Karen as a thing and a creature. There are other similar statements that I will not repeat. I do not accept your counsel's submission that this is to be treated as bluff, bluster, trash and rubbish talk. It dehumanises women, blames them for male violence, normalises the abuse of male power and contributes to the creation of circumstances in which a woman may be violently harmed or killed by a man, as occurred in this case. The crime that you committed must be unequivocally denounced by the court, not just because it was an aggravated manslaughter, but because it is directly associated with those views and opinions. Mr Smith, I'd ask you now to stand. Murders uh, of women in the domestic violence situation are um, uh, crimes of a kind to which the court has had to respond because uh, th th there is just so much of it. If we had not done that, I think um, we wouldn't have been playing the kind of role that we should. As well as the five purposes of sentencing, judges must consider sentencing principles. These principles have been developed through both legislation as well as previous court decisions, that is, common law. They act as a guide to help judges reach a decision. These include parity, which means co-offenders of the crime should receive similar sentences. There's parsimony, that is, the sentence must be no more severe than necessary. Proportionality, Basically, the sentence must fit the crime, so excessive punishment can't be dished out without justification. And totality. That's when the offender is facing more than one sentence. The overall sentence must fit the offender's overall behaviour. Then there's the circumstances of the crime to consider. What happened, how it happened, the background of the offender. Again, these will vary from case to case. Justice Taylor. If you were looking at a murder, um, for example, and you'd look at the circumstances of the murder and you could say that this is a particularly bad example of murder, if it's premeditated, um, it involves weapons, something like that, that, that would mean that it's a very serious example of the crime of murder. But then if you look at the circumstances of the accused, if, for example, they have a physical disability, uh, which means that their time in custody is going to be more difficult for them because of that physical disability, you have to take that into account in assessing how long it is right that they spend in custody. Now, they're pretty stark examples. It's often a lot more subtle than that. And sometimes it's very hard to reconcile the horrendous impact upon the loved ones of, for example, a deceased person in a murder trial and their need to see that justice is done with all of the factors that you have to look at with respect to the accused person and, and, and a judge in those. Justice Whelan is one of the more experienced judges here, now sitting on the Court of Appeal. He's handed down some pretty lofty sentences in his time in the criminal division. Here's how Justice Whelan approaches sentencing. If it's a trial, if you're sentencing someone after a trial, you're going to know a lot about the circumstances of the offence before you come 
to the sentencing side of it because you'll have heard the whole trial about uh, what had happened. You start with what the offence is and what the maximum penalty is, which tells you how serious Parliament regards it. Then you look at the particular offence and um, look at that in the context of um, the range of behaviour that might constitute that sort of offence, like some are obviously going to be worse than others. Everybody's got a story to tell. The offender, you've got to go through the offender's past history and their personal circumstances. There's a whole series of things that you have to take into account under the Sentencing Act. We have to write down what what we um, find relevant and what we find irrelevant about all of those specific things, which is why the things we produce are longer than the press releases that politicians produce. Uh, you've got to be able to put the arguments both sides and why you come to the conclusions that you do. And then, of course, you've got to look at what's happened in other cases that are relevant to um, yours. And an answer comes out. It's a mechanical process, but then it's an exercise in judgment within that sort of process. The role of the victim in the court process is something which has changed recently. Justice Whelan again. Yeah, victim impact statements is a big change. And I've always thought they've been very, they've, they've always been very important. Uh, I think, but their um, importance has increased over time. I think they add a uh, perspective that was um, missing previously, and uh, I, I think it's been a pretty valuable addition to the system. Why do you say it's been an important addition? What, well, what's it added? I think it's added a perspective. The The nature of the crime has always been uh, something about which we've known a lot, the circumstances of the offender has always been something about which we've known a lot. Whilst we've always known about the impact of the crime as it occurs, there's never really been an avenue for victims to say something about the impact of the crime after the event and how it's affected them subsequently. I think that's been a valuable perspective to be added. I think it's an added... Uh, an element which um, was probably under-utilised um, previously. Chair of the Sentencing Advisory Council of Victoria, Ari Freiberg. It's changed sentencing in the process, and I think the process of sentencing is very important because sentencing involves not just the Crown or the state against the offender. The victim is a very important participant. I won't say a party because victims aren't parties to the proceedings, uh, but victims are an important uh, uh, participant in the process and it's important that their voice be heard. Now all the studies of victim impact statements tend to indicate that they may not have a major effect on the ultimate outcome. What the victim impact statement has done is provide a more formal mechanism for that voice to be heard and it could be personally, it could be in writing, it could be in a poem, it could be in all sorts of forms which are accepted. And I think as a form of procedural justice, that is, that the victim has the feeling that they've been heard, in effect, a cathartic effect, that they are listened to in court, I think that's probably the most important outcome 
or effect of victim impact statement rather than producing uh, more severe sentences. Now comes the difficult part of attributing each of these factors, the purposes, the principles, punishment, the victim impact statements and so on, to the specific circumstances of the crime. Justice McCauley, appointed to the Supreme Court Trial Division in 2010, starts like this. We're probably all familiar with the graphic equaliser, that is that electronic display with a whole lot of vertical bars which jump up and down as the sound is occurring. Uh, in various uh, waves and if you imagine that all of those tick box things if each one of those was a uh, a bar on the graphic equaliser display the judge's role having taken into account all of those bars is to assign in a sense a, a nominal or notional value to each bar how much value do I place on the individual's personal circumstances What sort of value do I place in this synthesis on the victim impact? What sort of value do I place on the the grade of seriousness of this type of crime? Etc, etc, etc. And in fact, if you added them all up, you'd have uh, a graphic equaliser set of bars that's extended very widely across the screen. And our job is in a sense to notionally assign those values to all of those elements and then at the end arrive at a sentence which we think properly respects the direction in which all of those values lead us. In the end if you can imagine each individual judge might give a different value to each one of those bars and so in the end might come up with a different analysis, a different uh, synthesis of where that leads and that's the, the personal judgment which is involved in the sentencing process. With so many statutory requirements to consider, could judges be replaced by artificial intelligence, a process completely void of human bias? Changing the length of a sentence would be as simple as adjusting some code. So does Justice Bell think he could ever be replaced by an algorithm? No, I don't. (laughs) I don't. No, you can't sentence by algorithm it would be impossible to specify uh, the values in the algorithm. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson thinks it's one of the biggest challenges facing the court. In all areas, we're looking towards changes that are external. So AI is the big one. I don't know what impact that's going to have on the courts and the work of the courts and the legal profession generally, and that's something that I think will be a challenge for us. But how big a challenge... I don't know, but we sentence for individual circumstances, the individual, the individual crime, the circumstances of that particular crime and that particular person. I don't know how well AI would deal with that. Justice McCauley again. The process is mechanical in the sense that you must go through the statutory purposes. You must make sure that you have adhered to the statutory requirements for the particular crime and the particular circumstances which are before you. That said, uh, after that, um, and you will have heard this expression possibly before, um, we have to intuitively synthesise. Justice Champion. What the High Court calls it is sentencing by instinctive or intuitive synthesis. 
and that's the way we do it. It is not designed to be a mechanical process of, of adding up a, on a, like a balance sheet. Instinctive synthesis is an acknowledgement of the fact that sentencing isn't just an arithmetical exercise. We don't start with a particular number for this offence and then add a certain number of years or months because of this particular feature and then take off a, a certain number for some other feature. Uh, it's not a mathematical exercise. It involves an exercise of judgement based on balancing many different and often competing considerations. And that's why we describe it as a synthesis, because it really involves a judgment call based on a whole load of different factors. It's a um, consider everything and see what answer is produced by that consideration of everything. The alternative is, in America, they have this sort of grid system where you have, you know, a type B offence with um, mitigating factors 6, 12 and 13, and you can look up a grid and come to an answer. When I first heard the term instinctive synthesis, I thought it was an 80s rock band. I think the word instinctive synthesis or intuitive is unfortunate language because it makes it sound a little bit as if we just pick numbers. You know, it's, it's almost, it almost makes it sound like it's the vibe, as if we just pick numbers out of the hat, and that's not the case. It's still got to be guided by other authorities by the legislation, by principles of law. So in that sense, it's not entirely instinctive or intuitive. And that probably is an unfortunate expression. Instinct, it's a great word, isn't it? But what does it mean? Um, so to the average punter, which I am the average punter, it just means gut feel. And I don't think instinctive, instinctive synthesis, I can't even say it. So I'm Carmel Arthur and I'm currently a full-time board member on the post-sentence authority, but I'm also a board member, a sessional board member and community member on the Sentencing Advisory Council. Carmel's been involved in the courts now for about 20 years. Um, it wasn't until my husband was murdered that I was catapulted into the justice system and I was put on a very quick learning curve around what justice look like, looks like what you know the court's process is and you know what the pathway for me would be. When you first started that process what did you want? When I first, it's, it's a really interesting question, when I first started I actually wanted um, the toughest of tough penalties delivered to um, the offenders. I wanted a guilty verdict and I wanted the offenders to be put in prison and never to be released. I didn't want to hear from them or see them again. And do you still feel like that? I, it's interesting, I don't know what I feel. What I desperately tried to do was um, not focus on the offenders. I focused more on the behaviour of the offenders because I didn't want to become emotionally connected to them because I felt that that could be quite dangerous for me in terms of never letting them leave me. And at some point, you know, I, I, Rod and I um, had been married, but we'd only just given birth to our first child. So Jimmy was only seven weeks old and I was really conscious of a commitment that I made to Rod after he died. And that was that the, uh, that the best way to honour him would be to ensure that Jimmy didn't lose two parents that night. 
one of my biggest learnings was to understand, I remember sitting down with um, our prosecutions and being told that this was about, this was the accused against the state and that you really didn't have any role other than passive observer. And so judges understand that, but community don't. So we don't get it when we see a victim, you know, almost being discarded or not having a voice because they didn't have a place in the system. Now you, they do. I had these great expectations after our trial that um, it would be the panacea to ease my pain, and it wasn't. And I can remember after the verdict, um, everybody was just elated, and they're elated with the sentence. And we all went to the um, we all went to a pub in the city to you know celebrate the end of the trial and you know for moving on and I remember going into a corner and standing there it was about 20 minutes after and I just burst into tears and I just thought why am I still feeling this way I really thought once I got the sentence it would all be over for me and I would have this physiological reaction of relief and I didn't get that I just realized that um, my journey had only just begun in terms of you know, my new world, and that all that we got that day was the end to a legal process. I accept your counsel's submission that the sentence to be imposed should come with a parole period, and that it should not, it should not be crushing, and should not connote destruction of any reasonable expectation of useful life after release. As well as ensuring a sentence is in line with the law, judges avoid what's called a crushing sentence. A crushing sentence is a sentence that leaves a person without hope, uh, without any reason to look to the future because the only future they can see is um, the inside of a cell. Of course, for some offences like uh, you know murder and that sort of thing, you're going to be in that realm no matter how you work it out and that's the case also for large-scale drug trafficking and repeated sex offenders as well nowadays. So I suppose a crushing sentence is more for people in the sort of middle range that you don't want to create a situation where they have no hope and no incentive to change. I accept that that you wouldn't want to deliver a crushing sentence for a younger offender versus an older offender because the view of the courts, and it's actually in the principles of sentencing, that you do need to take into consideration the age of somebody and whether or not they, there is an element of rehabilitation capable within that person. So I get why a judge doesn't want to deliver a crushing sentence to a younger person, but I also get why people want to see crushing sentences. It's because it's the only thing that they can probably relate to. That I was crushed, you were crushed, done. Whereas um, it's not the purpose of sentencing and it's not the role of the judge. Locking people away for excessively long periods is also known as warehousing. Warehousing has its supporters. Some people, uh, I don't know, you'd have, you, if you went to the United States, you'd probably get the best data on that because they are certainly warehousing on a massive scale in that people serve very long sentences there for not necessarily terribly serious crime. 
I don't have the perception that the USA is a safer place as a result, and yet they probably got 10 times the number of prisoners per head of population that we have. I think it would be something like 10 times. So, are judges getting it right? Ari Freiberg again from the Sentencing Advisory Council. If you judge it by the number of appeals that come from the county court or the Supreme Court, uh, or even from the Magistrates' Court, they're very, very small. About 3% of cases are appealed, and not all of those are successful. So you could say that judging on that criterion, 97% of cases are probably right. A study from the Sentencing Advisory Council, Sentence Appeals in Victoria, done in August 2018, found of the 1,910 sentences in Victoria's high courts, that's the Supreme Court and the County Court, 230, or 12%, were appealed. 23 of those appeals were from the Crown, that is, the prosecutor wanting a tougher sentence. Now, of those 23 appeals, 16 were successful. So out of more than 1,900 sentences, 16 were found to be too low. That's less than 1%. In contrast, 44 sentences were successfully appealed by the offender, that is, they were found to be too high. So from a legal perspective, judges are generally getting it right. But what about the other major stakeholder in sentencing? The community. Uh, too lenient. Mild too lenient. Uh, to be honest, I think that um, they're too soft. I think that uh, some judges do get it right, you know, because they see and understand the situation uh, for these particular offenders. Um, but there are some cases that I think they are being a little bit lenient and uh, should be a little bit harsher. No. I think we should look at, um, I watch a lot of crime shows on TV and I think the Americans get it right. They um, are a lot harsher than what we are and I, I just think the laws and the courts are too soft in Victoria. Um, probably not. I think that there's been a sort of a, a feeling that the police and everybody are doing their, their uh, job correctly but when it gets to the, the courts they're just being a little bit lenient. Um, I think they're going quite harsh on ones that shouldn't be quite as harsh and getting it wrong in other cases where it should be. In the general public's view, they often think they get it wrong that judges are far too lenient and that's based on their perceptions of sentencing that they gain through the media, which often picks up the unusual cases, those which are controversial and those which are at the extremes, usually the ones that newspapers believe are too low. Justice Taylor. What I think is one of the most interesting things about sentencing is that um, despite the reasonably frequent um, criticisms that judges are out of touch, when all of the studies that have show that when people are actually informed in depth, not, not in three paragraphs in a newspaper, but in depth about the sentencing process and what the judge had to take into account and not take into account, those criticisms tend to fall away. So sentencing is very complex and it's very hard to communicate the complexity of it to people who aren't intimately involved in the particular sentencing. We've come to Tasmania to speak to someone who's looked really closely at this issue. Yeah, hi, I've just got an appointment with Her Excellency for an interview. And your name, please? Uh, Greg Muller from the Supreme Court in Victoria. 
Thank you. I'll open the gate. We've come to Government House in Hobart, a palatial neo-Gothic sandstone building surrounded by ornate English gardens overlooking the Derwent River. I'm Kate Warner, Professor Kate Warner. I'm Governor of Tasmania, but I also still do some work at the university, particularly in relation to the sentencing projects and public opinion. Professor Warner recently did a study called the Victorian Jury Sentencing Study to find out if the public perception that judges are soft on crime stacks up. Well, the study really had its genesis in a comment made by the Chief Justice of the High Court, and he suggested that if politicians really want to know what the public think about sentencing, and also policy makers, why don't they ask jurors? The idea that a jury represents the community. Yes, two things, really. The jury represents the community, and they're drawn from the community. It's quite representative of the general public. And also, they're well-informed about particular cases. We recruited jurors from trials where there had been a guilty verdict. And we did this in a number of stages. So first of all, after the guilty verdict, we asked them to suggest what an appropriate punishment would be for that offender before the judge had imposed sentence. So they didn't know what the judge was going to do. So it was their view. And we said, we want your view. We don't want you to guess what the judge might do. We want your view on what you think is the appropriate sentence. So that was really the central question in the study. We asked them about the aggravating and mitigating factors in the case, other sentencing factors, and um, various other questions repeating some of the stage one questions, such as, do you think sentences in general are too lenient or too tough? And so what did you find? Well, the first thing to do was to compare the juror's sentence in each case with the judge's sentence that was imposed. So we wanted to see whether the juror's sentences would be more severe or more lenient than the judge's. And we found actually that a majority of jurors came up with a sentence which was more lenient than the judge's sentence, 62%. So, you know, quite a a clear majority. This finding flies in the face of previous research. Studies in 1998 and 2001 found only 18 to 20% of people believe that judges are in touch with public opinion. But Kate Warner's jury study found 90% of jurors thought that the sentence imposed by the judge was appropriate. And 83% also thought that judges were in touch with public opinion. So how can this discrepancy be explained? Well, there are, there are various ways that you can try and explore public opinion. So you can give members of the public more information. So people have done this, getting them to read a case summary or reading out a case vignette. So that gives them a little bit of information, but they would never have as much information as a juror would have after sitting through the case. So they're much more intimately concerned with the case. And also, they've seen the offender as a real person. So it's not a matter of just having a sort of stereotypical view of the offender for a particular type of offence. So, yes, it has much more of the human element involved. And so they saw more what a judge would see. Yes, absolutely, what a judge would see. And that changed their idea of sentencing? Well, um, we think so. 
There were some examples, though, where judges and juries parted ways. Yes, absolutely. So um, for sex offences, only 50% came up with a sentence which was more lenient. But for violent offences, it was something like 72% came up with a sentence which was more lenient. So a big contrast between violence and sex offences. Do you think there's a discrepancy then between what the public thinks sentencing is for and what a judge thinks sentencing is for? Yes, actually, that was another question that we asked. So we did ask about the purpose. And they preferred, you know, a deserved punishment. Sometimes we call this retribution or just deserts, whereas that was the least favoured purpose for, for judges. So quite a difference there between the two. The study found that if someone sat in on a case from beginning to end, they generally tend to agree with the judge. But a jury is only 12 people. The rest of us don't get that intimate knowledge of cases. And therein lies the problem. Public opinion, despite not being informed, still matters. Yeah, it does. It does. And see, some would argue that if you don't take public opinion into account, then um, this is bad for the criminal justice system because if it's too divorced from what actually happens in the court, it will lose its legitimacy. And we want the criminal justice system to have legitimacy in the eyes of the public. First of all, we want them to obey the law. Secondly, we want them to cooperate with the criminal justice system. So we want them to come forward and give evidence to the police. If they're a witness of crime, we want them to give evidence in court. We want them to appear for jury service. And um, if we're arguing that punishment is about showing public condemnation for offending, then surely it's argued the views of the public about that offending should be relevant. The Sentencing Advisory Council has just released another report called Public Opinion About Sentencing. It's an overview of 10 years of studies looking into community attitudes about sentencing. You can find it online. Basically, all the research points to a consistent finding – Quote, informed members of the community are slightly more lenient than judges, not the other way around. End quote. Is there such a thing as a perfect sentence? No, I don't think, um, is there a perfect sentence? It's not, a, it's not an exact science, you know. X plus Y doesn't equal Z. And everybody has a different view. I, I know within my own family that we all wanted different sentencing outcomes. So there was never going to be a perfect sentence. Justice Taylor. Some people will never be satisfied with what, with what a judge decides um, in a way that's completely understandable because nothing that ever happens in this court will bring someone back f- from the dead. Um, at the same time, there are very many people who, as long as they have had, have been heard and can see that the judge has done his or her very best to achieve a just result, accept that. I think we have a great expectation that sentences will deliver a lot more than what they're capable of delivering. But they are necessary and they must be in line with expectations, managed expectations. Sentences can ease your pain a little bit because it validates, but they'll never take away your pain. That's, you can't undo what's been done. Next episode, we're going to look at some of the more controversial aspects of sentencing. 
mental illness, drugs and parole. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Subscribe to Gertie's Law wherever you get your podcasts and if your app allows you to, please rate and review. Listener.